listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. This is my fifth discussion with renowned professor, investor, and researcher, Peter Linneman. And given the huge number of people who have registered to listen to this webcast live, I'm not the only one who wants to hear Peter's outlook. I want to start today's webcast not talking about the economy, COVID, interest rates, or any of the topics I usually touch on to start the webcast. I want to briefly touch on culture and character. I'm assuming a good number of listeners watched the final four and saw Gonzaga make it to the finals only to lose to an incredibly talented Baylor basketball team. But throughout the tournament, Gonzaga's team showed why they were undefeated during the regular season and what playing like a team was all about. Yes, Gonzaga has some amazing individual players, but the way they played as a team, passing the ball, spreading the scoring, was exemplary of the program Mark Few has built and the team culture he has instilled in all the players who pass up scholarships from Kentucky and Duke to play for Gonzaga in Spokane, Washington. Then this past Saturday night, the UMass Minutemen hockey team won the NCAA Division I Hockey Championship. Throughout the championship game, the ESPN broadcasters kept talking about the culture and teamwork of UMass. And after the game, the assistant captain, Bobby Trevigno, was asked to explain the UMass culture and responded, it's pretty simple. Coach Carvel places more value on character than skill. Now, UMass had just won the national championship five to nothing, and it was pretty apparent they were the most skilled team in college hockey. Yet on Thursday night in the national semifinals, UMass beat defending national champion Minnesota Duluth three to two in overtime without their leading scorer, without their starting goalie, and without two other players due to COVID protocols. Skill may have allowed UMass to win the championship game on Saturday, but to get there, and beat Minnesota Duluth without four-star players. They needed character and teamwork over skill. The basketball program at Gonzaga that Mark Few has built and the hockey program at UMass that Greg Carville has built are exemplary not only for their success, but for their teamwork, character, and culture that define them. As we head out of the pandemic and get back to a more normal life, I would suggest that people reflect back upon the character and culture of the people and institutions they dealt with during the pandemic. When times are good, the difference between good institutions and great institutions is hard to define and see. But when times are tough and the outlook is less certain, the actions that people and institutions take are telling of their character and culture. And those people who stood up, those institutions that invested in their people are the ones that will win over the long term. Okay. Peter, another terrific quarterly letter. To any of you who don't already subscribe to the Linneman letter, you can go to linemanassociates.com and sign up. So you start this letter with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt saying, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. 
So as the pandemic subsides, the economy starts to crank up and markets continue to reach all-time highs, what should we be doing? So thank you for having me back, Willie, and your comments about culture. Uh, my backdrop today is a block from where I live. It's Independence Hall, uh, which was the culture of establishing the company, country and so forth. So it's very fitting. Um, what should we be doing? I think um, different answer for different people. If you've been fully vaccinated, you, which I have been, fortunately, I think we have a responsibility to start reliving life. And I mean that when I say responsibility, responsibility to the economy, responsibility to our citizens. I'm not saying be crazy, but it's time for us to be fully productive. It's time for us to care about others, get back to work. I know most of us have been at work, but to get back to work, get back engaged and so forth. If you have not been vaccinated yet, it's just, I think the right thing is don't die in the last days of the war. I think we talked about that a little three months ago, Willie, which is don't die in the last days of the war. As you well know, the vaccination rate, roughly three million a day. It doesn't take a genius to do the mathematics that says in 60 days, we're basically all people who are over 80 days, all people over the age of 12 will be vaccinated if they so desire. And for those people, don't die in the last days of the war. I'm not saying hide in a bunker, but be especially careful. And I think that's a responsibility also society, as well as your friends and family. If you've made it this long, make it another few days. And that's what I think is the right thing to do is for those of us who can to realize it's time to re-enter the real world, which is a little strange. And for those who have not, be careful on behalf of everybody who loves you and society as a whole. So we're going to get into specific asset classes and value and all the things that you have in it. But as it relates to investing right now, as there's this big play of the reopening investment. Today, I saw that JetBlue was upgraded to a strong buy. A lot of people are sitting there saying, wow, and we'll talk about it in a second. All the data says that we're about to come into some really, really good numbers. So I guess from an investment standpoint, is this an all-in time or is this a, hey, be careful because we could have some stops and starts. This isn't just straight up from the bottom left to the upper right. Well, as you recall, I dubbed this starting back in September a butterfly recovery. You know, there was a big drop and then a pretty big hop up and then it's butterflied around since. And for those who don't know what I mean by butterfly, think about butterfly moves, a little forward, sideways, back, forth. And we have had a butterfly exercise. And I think we've got a couple of more months of butterfly for the reasons I was just alluding to. Not everybody is vaccinated. Not everybody should be fully back. Not everybody should be out. And so I think the next couple of months, there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's still a lot. I don't think it's an all in. And uncertainty includes what happens to variants and how long does the vaccine last. And a lot of the signs are really good, but I don't think it's an all-in. I think it's an in, but I don't think it's an all-in, Willie. And that I would say that almost across the board. Okay. So 
Let's talk about, I want to go to debt relief packages, liquidity in the economy, and what the federal government is doing right now. You talk about the fact that the federal debt at 20 trillion and comparing that to uh, 116 trillion of household wealth and 20 trillion of GDP. and, And you say the federal debt is more manageable than it may appear. When does that number get to something that starts to concern you? We're nowhere near a number that concerns me on debt. And you said it, 21-ish trillion dollars in federal debt, 116 trillion dollars in household wealth. Come on, we can afford that. I'm not saying we want to, but we can. And you can do one-to-one GDP. Come on, think of a building where you could pay off all your debt with one year of income if you wanted to. I mean, that's pretty stunning. Or think of the present value version we've talked about. I've never viewed the issue, it's not about the debt. It's about are we getting our money's worth, Willie? That debt reflects spending. And that debt reflects taxation policies or money collection policies. The question is always, are we getting our money's worth? And by the way, if you think of a private business, Willie, if somebody comes to you and says, I want to buy a borrow to uh, buy an apartment building, the question is, are they getting their money's worth, right? Is it If they're going to pay a trillion dollars for a six-unit apartment building with a $1,000 NOI, they're not getting their money's worth. That's the issue. And so the issue is always with state, local, federal, and even private, Are you getting your money's worth? And the historic problem, I think, is by and large, we don't get our money's worth from government spending. If we did, sign me up, right? Sign me up. But we know we have waste, fraud, and abuse, and we have bridges from nowhere to nowhere and in my district and so forth. On the other hand, CARES 1 wasn't perfect, but was we got our money's worth. We've got our money's worth. Less so with CARES 2, really less so with CARES 3, probably really less so with jobs. That doesn't mean somebody's not going to get their money's worth. But when I say we, I mean society as a whole. So you say on that, but we can't afford $1 trillion of per you, wildly mistargeted government spending. So for a moment, talk about why this next bill is wildly mistargeted government spending. Well. I'm not saying all of it has been mistargeted. I'm not saying this is what happened. Willie, if I told you we spent $2 trillion and it was all to pay bribes, that would be mistargeted, right? That would not help society. Or if we spent $2 trillion and it was all to buy heroin for people, that would not be productive. Now, obviously, that's not what we're doing. I'm just showing what I mean by that. We still have probably 10 to 15% of our economy, whether that is businesses or individual workers or people who want to be workers who are still struggling. Now, the good news is most of us aren't struggling, but we still have 10 to 15% who are in a generational struggle as it relates to COVID, whether it's a medical struggle or a job struggle because of where they happen to work. 
those workers at restaurants, it's not their fault. Governments decided in the sake of health and welfare to shut down their jobs, right? That's not their fault. Those people need targeted aid. They deserve targeted aid. Much as after a hurricane, if a hurricane hits, those citizens need and deserve targeted aid to them. If a hurricane were to hit New Orleans, we don't give money to everybody in the country. We give relief to the people affected in New Orleans. And what has happened as we went from CARES 1, as we've gotten to CARES 3, and now as we talk about jobs, program jobs, we're not targeting nearly so much. We're giving, quote, to everyone. And my comment, by the way, I have nothing against somebody at Microsoft who's making $70,000. Good for them. They have a nice job with a great company. They did not need that last money that just was given to them. In no way. There was somebody, on the other hand, who was working at a tourist hotel in uh, New York that needs 10 times that amount. So talk about That's that. I mean. yeah. So talk about that for a second on unemployment. So the BLS number is now down to 6.2%. Your estimation is that that's shy by about 400 basis points or 6.6 million jobs is the number that you yeah. that you talk about. Why are those 6.6 million people not appearing on the BLS numbers? Okay, so first of all, everything I'm about to say the BLS fully understands, fully knows they're not trying to deceive anybody. Their job is to collect data in a consistent way, right? That's the first thing. You can do some simple, real simple math, and you'll see where I get where I do, and I'll explain it. We had a 3.5% unemployment rate February 2020, 3.5%. We are 8 million jobs lower than the number of jobs we had in February 2020, Okay. And on top of that, over that year, we would have added about 2 million more jobs. So we're down about 10 million, just roughly. I'm being very round. You're right. You can get it as low as about six and a half, depending on how you play with stuff. If you're 10 million jobs short and you just do the math, that says the unemployment rate is around 10, 10 and a half percent, apples to apples. Another way, Willie, is that you had about 5 million people getting unemployment benefits February of 2020. You have 18 million getting unemployment benefits today. That is to say, they've walked into the office. Well, they haven't walked. They've virtualed into the office and said, I'm unemployed and I deserve and we have 18 million. Well, do the math on 18 million and you come up to around 12% unemployment. And there's a couple of other ways you can triangulate. They're all, as you say, 400 basis points higher. Some of them relate to how unemployment is measured. That's the main one in the survey the BLS does. They ask people, are you employed? And some people are saying yes, but they're furloughed. Right. And they should be saying no, but they don't. Who cares the difference between furloughed or not? I'm getting my bill. So there's a whole bunch of technical reasons. But if you compare to where we were, February 2020, we're somewhere 
minimum probably six and a half, maximum probably 13 million more not working. That's the math. And when I say that, go back to what I was just saying before that, Willie, what, 10% of the economy, something is really still hurting? That's what I'm talking about, right? That differential, that extra number of people and their employers. So with that as the backdrop, and there are a ton of people who are still unemployed, you go through and look at peak pre-COVID quarters across all sorts of different metrics. And then you go to where we ended the year in Q4. And I just want to run through a couple of these because the statistics are fascinating. Um, This is from the very best quarter pre-COVID to Q4 2020. Home prices up 10.8%. Retail sales up 7.4%. Single family starts flat at 1 million. Real median multi-rents up 17% while vacancy is up 30% to 8%. And it's the same for office. Real rents per square foot are actually up 4.6%, while vacancy is up 15%. Those numbers don't seem to make sense to me. I mean, just the retail sales one up 7.4%, we can get. A lot of people at home are still buying stuff. Retail sales are going well. But when you look at things like office rents up 4.6% and real multi-rents up 17%, while vacancies have gone up, Help us understand those numbers. So what's happening, I think, on multi and office, I know what's happening, but the data is not fine enough to resolve it, is uh, concessions, right? Concessions. And there aren't, especially in office, there aren't a lot of transactions, right? There aren't a lot of leases. So it's a little misleading. What's happening in office, I think, is you're not seeing net effective. But more to the point, you're not getting many leases. And what is leasing tends to be better space, right? Tends to be the really better space, so that skews. The equivalent, Willie, is we have in there that the average hourly compensation in the U.S. went up dramatically as we shut down the economy. You know, how could that happen? Well, the way it happened was low-wage workers, right? Low-wage workers got let go, recalculate the average. Nobody's being paid more, but the average goes up, right? That's what was. And since we started to recover, the average wage has come down. Why? Same thing, right? Which is now the lower wage come in, they pulled the average down. Some of that is also going on with the office rent. Multifamily, I think, again, the data, as you you know better than anybody, probably, you see it in your underwriting, concessions have grown, but they aren't well measured by any of the data. In other words, they're well measured when you underwrite a particular property, but they're not well measured in the data. So I think that's what's going on there. As to what's going on in the other stuff, 85% of the people are doing pretty well, right? They're doing pretty well. And even because of the aid that was given, not perfectly, to those that were hurt, they're not doing awful. This is not like, you know, I have the program in Kenya, and I spent my morning talking to people in Kenya. When they lose jobs, there's nobody sending them money. There's nobody giving them unemployment. It's grim. Right. And we did a pretty good job of keeping people 
uh, alive. We could have done better, but, you know, we did a pretty good job. So I think that's what's going on in some of the others. So I don't know whether you saw Fed Chair Powell on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, Peter, but a couple things that I jotted down as I listened to his interview. The first was strong growth and strong employment starting right now. Your outlook on that is a little bit more tempered as it relates to when this thing starts to spring. I think from my recollection, as you said, September is when we're really going to start to see this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be a light switch. It's going to be more of a dimmer. And I think Chairman Powell is certainly right. It is starting. There's no doubt it is starting. You're an employer. I'm an employer. I'm on boards. There is still a caution. And I think most employers are taking the attitude sort of that we started out with, Willie, which is I don't want any of my people to die in the last day of the war, right? And so there's still caution. But I think by the time we get well into July and certainly after Labor Day, absent some unforeseen, it will be really picking up. And employers are going to be saying, okay, we're going to grow. Now we are going to switch from survival mode, which let's face it, a lot of companies have just been in survive and tread water. There's going to be a switch in mindset to grow and grow and grow. And I think there's going to be an, um, a desire to grow and take that risk. And I don't think that fully kicks in maybe late July or August, but certainly after Labor Day. And so... The Fed has, and this will lead to a question on rates, because I want to know how long you think they'll be low, how, how low and for how long. But the Fed has clearly stated two things have to happen for them to think about raising the short-term rate, the Fed funds rate. First, unemployment has to come down and you need to get back to full employment. And Chairman Powell said that's somewhere between four and 5%. If you use the 6.2 number that the BLS is saying, you might sit there and say, we might not be that far away from that. If you use your more like 10 to 11%, we got a long way to go to get to something that would check that box for the Fed. The second one is for inflation to start to run on us. And one of the things I thought was interesting that Powell said in the interview was he said, look, we have such great data today. The Fed used to be preoccupied with missing the markers and then letting rates run. And then you can't kind of get in front of them. And so they would always take sort of proactive steps to make sure that inflation didn't start to run. He seemed to indicate on Sunday night that he has great data and that they can actually watch inflation not only touch 2%, but be at 2% a period of time and not do anything about it. And you state in the letter several times, rates are going to be low for a long time. What does that mean? How low and for how long? Okay. So just as a reminder, go back and look how long short rates stayed at essentially zero. The Fed funds rate stayed essentially at zero. And the answer is essentially, I think I'm doing from memory, the last quarter of 2008, it was well into 17 or 18 until it went anywhere, right? And as you and I know, the economy had come a long way from the fourth quarter of 2008 to, let's say, 2017 when they started raising the short rate. I think that shows their mindset. And I don't think that mindset is any different uh, under the current Fed than on its predecessor. So I look for it to stay low for two, three, four, five years, six years, even if there is a robust recovery. Okay. And I think partly because they're going to be implicitly paying more attention to the unemployment rate I'm describing. 
the mechanical unemployment rate. That's what they did the last time. Now, as to inflation, I think it's the great misunderstood phenomena of the last 12 or 13 years. The narrative is there has been no inflation to speak of over the last 12, 13 years. Consumer prices, you know, what's in 2% a year, let's just say more or less. Some items more, some items less, but CPI 1.6 to 2.2%. And all that money, QE1, QE2, QE3 went in the system. Tons of it came out from 2014 to 2000, the end of 2019. No inflation. That is absolutely wrong. There was enormous inflation over that period. Inflation, if you look it up in a textbook, is the on average movement of prices in the economy. It doesn't say consumer prices, of prices. So, Willie, if I did a quiz, consumer prices didn't go up much over that period, but what did go up a lot? in price as that money came out. Stock price, Gold, assets. Real estate, home prices, the stock market, private corporation values. I mean, we go across the board. Assets, assets. And the reason, and it took me a while to come to understand this. The banking system of the 1970s, which is when they put a lot of money in, and it came out because the banking system was very fragmented, very fragmented, unrecognizably fragmented compared to today, compared to the last decade. And they made $1,000 and $2,000 and $10,000 loans to little America. And so the price of bread went up because that's what America bought with the money they were given. What we saw, particularly from 2014 to the start of 2020, was the money that was given to the banks came out to people who bought assets. And they went out and bought assets from people who owned assets. The people who sold took that money and went and bought other assets. They didn't buy Wonder Bread. They bought the company Wonder Bread, right? They didn't buy bottles of Coca-Cola. They bought Coca-Cola, the company. And I think we had enormous inflation. When you look at it, it just was focused on asset prices because that's who got the money. And I think we're set up for the same thing going forward. The money they put in with QE Infinity is going to sit in the banks, or at the Fed more particularly, for another year or two. And when it comes out, it's going to go to asset buyers much more than goods and service buyers. And does that systemic change that you just outlined set us up for more crises like the asset inflation or the asset bubble in single family housing in the mid 2000s in the sense that if it used to be the concern was that the cost of bread was going up, the Fed felt like they had to temper that and make sure that they were watching everything from M1 out to everything else. And now all of a sudden you have asset values that can get inflated. But if that's institutional capital that's going into those asset values that goes in quickly, it can also come out just as quickly. Are we Have we put more, if you will, data into the economy because of where money is going? We put more beta into the short term of asset values. And the reason is, 
the fear and greed factor, right, of asset. Yes, there's the fundamental of cash flows and future. But on top of that is the fear and greed. And we have probably accentuated the exposure to fear and greed by pumping more money into it, right? So that when you're greedy, you're really greedy because you have so much more money. But when you're fearful, you're really fearful and you pull it out, okay? On the other hand, I'm reminded of my, as you're talking, uh, and I've had this conversation of my grandmother Lineman. My grandmother Lineman was an immigrant from Germany, and I was a Milton Friedman PhD student in the 1970s, and my grandmother was a real person. And she kept saying to me, Peter, how can the price of a loaf of bread keep going up? Surely it will come back down. And I'd say, Grandma, it's not going to come back down as long as all that money is in the system. And they're not going to take the money out that they put in. They may slow down how they increase it. They're not going to take it out. And she'd say, but surely the price of a loaf of bread has to come back down. And I say, Grandma, it might go up and down because of a sale or a shortage of wheat or something. But it's not going to fundamentally. That's the same thing, Grandma Lineman right, Willie, talking to you, the price of a dollar of operating income has been fundamentally changed by QE1, QE2, QE3, QE infinity. Fundamentally changed. We put money in, and unless they were to take that money out of the system, there's been a fundamental reset on values. Now, to your point, those values can go higher or lower in a temporary sense, that's the fear and greed in particular. But fundamentally, there's just too much money there. And when the fear burns off, it goes right back to where it was. And there's so much more money so, than ever before. So let's the talk. Bias let's is, talk. Well, I'm just the last point is my grandmother worried about the price of a loaf of bread going up. We're in a world where the price of a loaf of bread doesn't go up, but the price of a dollar of operating income fundamentally went up and it's not going to go back down. And again, again, with QE infinity, though it can bounce up and down, but not fundamentally. So let's talk for a moment about the amount of money in the system and what that means as it relates to yields and being in a yield-starved world and why that then seems to be driving more and more capital into commercial real estate. So in the letter, you talk about the fact that personal interest income, so interest off of corporate bonds, off of government debt, was at $1.6 trillion in January of 2021. And that is down over $1,000 per household in America from 2007. So I want people to hear this. So $1.6 trillion of interest payments were made in the month of January to Americans, and that was $1,000 per household lower than it was in 2007, even though there is $17 trillion more of corporate debt and government debt outstanding today than there was in 2007. You go on to make the point that annual dividends were at $1.2 trillion last year down 5.7% year over year between 19 to 20 because corporations are holding on a dividend income. So you sit there and you say, okay, we've got a dramatic fall off in interest income off of bonds, and we've got a dramatic step down in uh, dividend bearing securities. And so there's no cash flow. 
There's no cash flow whatsoever to all these people who, particularly retirees, which is where all the money is today, who aren't making that monthly recurring revenue off of being invested in bonds or dividend paying stocks. And as I sit around and talk to clients of Walker and Dunlop who say, I can't believe that. I mean, I just yesterday was in Salt Lake City talking to one of our clients who said that an asset in Albuquerque, New Mexico, had just a multi-asset, had just traded at a 3.9 cap rate. And they sat there and they rolled their eyes, a 3.9 cap rate in that roaring metropolis, nothing against Albuquerque, New Mexico, but that roaring metropolis of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I said, the issue with it is, is that Lineman talks about a spread between cap rates in commercial real estate and interest rates. And then second of all, having no yield off of bonds or off of dividend paying stocks. And everyone says that three, nine on a multi-asset in Albuquerque looks pretty good. Can you expand on that? No, you get it. I mean, first on the interest payments, probably the greatest transfer of wealth without ever being legislated by Congress occurred over that time period you were describing, Willie, right? Congress never voted or debated, should they take money away from people who were safe savers, right? And give it to borrowers and equity investors, right? Asset buyers. No debate. I don't know if it would have passed Congress or not, but there was never a debate, never a bill. And yet without that, the government, through the Fed, made enormous wealth and income transfers. And just, you hit it. You know, imagine the person, they had 400,000 lifetime savings, they had a 4% interest, they had $16,000 a year, and then suddenly for a decade they had zero a year. That's the federal government imposing effectively 100% tax on what otherwise would have been their interest income, right? With no legislation. That was a huge, huge transfer. And I think it's part of the dissonance that's out there. I don't think people think about the way we do. As far as chasing yield, if you put enough money in the system, it's got to go somewhere. And the people they're giving the money to ultimately don't want to buy bottles of Coca-Cola and they don't want to buy bread. So if I jam a whole bunch of money into the system and people don't want a whole lot more bottles of Coca-Cola, what can it do except chase assets? And chasing assets is exactly what you're describing. Now, do they chase it every day? Nope. They get frightened sometimes, right? And that's the volatility you're talking about because if they're chasing it with a lot more money, and suddenly they get frightened of their own shadow, the drop's really big. But then they come back, and you see it in the stock market, right? You've seen it in asset prices. They've got to chase it. They've got to chase it. If you give them the money, they're going to do something with it. So on that, you also point out, so let's take this to retail sales, because you just talked about they don't want to buy a bottle of Coke. You point out in the letter that deposits in checking and savings accounts at U.S. depositories, standard is $3 trillion. That's the trend over the last 20 or 30 years that you point out. And today it's at $9.1 trillion, $6 trillion more than trend, sitting in checking accounts and savings accounts of the U.S. consumer. So what is Joe and Mary consumer going to do with that $9 trillion? So no one knows. It's a great question. It's an unanswered question. 
what do I think they're going to do? I, I would say a third, a third, a third. I think probably a third they are actually going to save. The primary way they're going to save is buying a home. There was a lot of people who forestalled buying a home. We saw that in the past year as the savings shot up. People put it into the down payment and not just a minimal down payment in many cases, a fairly large down payment. So I would include in savings buying a home. It's not perfect, but I would include that. I think a third is going to, so a third is going to be saved. Maybe a third at most will be consumed in the sense of what? I'm going to take that vacation to Paris. Remember, I didn't take my vacation to Paris last year, so I'm going to take a super vacation when I'm allowed. You're not allowed in Paris. So I think you're going to see a lot more season tickets, right? More concert tickets, more that type of stuff. I think you'll see it. And then I think the other is you're going to see it chase mostly passive assets, mostly passive assets. All I mean by passive, it's more likely to go into Vanguard than it is to private equity. I'm not saying private equity won't get some of it, but it's more likely to be relatively passive. They got to do something with it. They're not just going to sit on it forever, right? There's What's the point? What's the point of sitting on something yielding nothing? And I'm willing to bet if we went through all the, what do we have, 7,000 listeners? And those who are going to watch this on YouTube, we're going to get up to 70,000 or some number. Ask yourself, do you have more cash today than you had a year ago or two years ago? And the answer to almost for everybody is yes, a lot. I know I do. And I keep asking myself, what am I going to do with it? And it's why... When people talk about the Roaring Twenties that understand the data, you can see why, Willie, right? So go on that for a second. So I hear Roaring Twenties and it scares the crap out of me. Sorry, but it does. I mean, I I hear Roaring Twenties and I think about mansions in Newport and then a crash that comes afterwards. And you talk about the reopening and the Roaring Twenties and people going back to health clubs and that you think that that's a a good buy right now in cinemas and sort of, if you will, active retail. And you put out there that, you you know, from your visibility, it's got a, you know, a solid three-year expansion here. How, I mean, you also just said that rates probably don't move for even a longer period of time. What should we all be careful of? What are the warning no, we signs? Should be your, careful. your canaries, just one quick thing for people who read the letter. Peter has his five canaries of like, we've got to be careful about this, this, and this. And right now, other than a potential rebirth of COVID through the strains, you've basically got five canaries on everything. In other words, right now, your your VIX, your volatility index is really low. Right. So what do we need to be careful of? We have, Was it Pogo or Peanuts, the cartoon strip that said we've met the enemy and it's us? Right. I don't remember whether it's Pogo or Peanuts, but it was one or the other. We have to be careful of ourselves. We are strange little animals, right, with strange psychoses and strange, and we keep replaying them. We get afraid of our own shadow, and then at other times we're afraid of nothing. And the fact that we're a species that at times is afraid of its shadow and at other times is afraid of nothing. When I say nothing, think of the people who charge into combat, you know, and yet they can also be afraid of their shadow, right? So you go, if we're a species that can charge into combat and yet also be afraid of our shadow, 
you're going to get volatility. You're going to get overdone. And I know that's not a very elegant mathematical model, but it's kind of true. So I think we're in a three-year period where a four-year period where we're set up for the charging forth and ignoring a lot of the signs of excess are there. There's going to be money. We've already saved money. There's going to be a growth in jobs. There's going to be a growth in productivity. And we'll start believing our own PR. I don't know about you. The most difficult thing I have in my life is controlling me in terms of my own belief of my own bullshit, right? And I think what do we have to be afraid of? Not a lot. We obviously have variants and such to be afraid of. We always have to be afraid of politicians, no matter what party they are, no matter what level. Anybody who believes they know better what to do for you than you do, and they've never met you, should give you a pause, right? That should give you a pause that someone who's never met you believes they know what's better for you than you do, systematically. So, of course, we have to worry about that. But we're in a good window. And by the way, it doesn't matter if it's Democrats and it doesn't matter if it's Republicans. Okay, it might be a bill better this way or a little better that way. Yes, it will help this sector if it's Democrats. Yes, it will help that sector if it's Republicans. It's not that. But you're right. At the back end of it is we've met the enemy. We know who the enemy is, right? We know who the enemy is. It's us. So as we think about the various asset classes, let's get you to run through from a real estate standpoint. One of the things that I was surprised in your data is that your projections on single family housing starts and the overall single family market are what I would call tempered in comparison to what you hear in the general media, this kind of frenzy as it relates to single family housing. So talk for a moment about why you think single family housing cools a little bit as we move out of the pandemic and what we're going to see from starts over the next couple of years. Yeah. And I'll be the first to admit that I was, I think everybody was, but certainly I was completely wrong about what would happen to single family. I thought it would collapse with it. I thought construction costs would collapse Instead, what I did not understand was how powerful the involuntary savings would be in terms of driving down payments and driving the demand for housing. And once you had that demand for housing, then with some other technical stuff, construction costs instead of plummeting kind of rose. So I missed that completely. Why do I see it temper? We have fundamentally underbuilt single-family housing. We have underbuilt multifamily a bit over the last 15 years. So there's a catch-up in both. But you need a down payment. And the down payment, as savings rates have come down, as people go back to traveling, as people go back to shopping, remember what involuntary savings did was I was unwilling to save rather than go on vacation or rather than go to the ball game or rather than go to dinner. But when I wasn't allowed to go to dinner or a vacation, I saved it. I had that savings and I put it to work on a down payment. I think as people are going to be able to do stuff again, that's going to deteriorate a bit. And so down payments will become a bit more of a constraint. So that's why I'm I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm actually kind of bullish, but not off the charts bullish on single family. 
on go, multi- go on multi. And one of the things I want you to go to is your projection is that multi-vacancy actually moves up through this year and then recovers after this year. Talk about that, because I thought that was interesting. Right. Well, what's happening there is the pipeline, right? And particularly, and you see this, Willie, and your listeners uh, to the center and multifamily, particularly in core urban, right? There was a big pipeline and that not huge, but that pipeline emptied last, not emptied, started empty last year and into this year. So that's driving the vacancy up. And at the same time, a number of these people who would have otherwise bought a home in two or three years, you know, when they build up more down payment, instantly had it, they moved out. So that's what's going on there. There's a tent transitional moment. The long-term dimensions of the multifamily, we have good demographics, not unbelievable demographics, but good demographics from a renter perspective. And uh, I like it as a sector. I like it as a, um, it's got to burn off some excess in the urban cores, but I generally like it. I've always kind of liked suburban, especially when everybody wanted to be in core central, but um, I like multifamily. Let me list a couple. Let me list your three weakest and strongest multi-markets by the end of 2022. And then I want to go and ask you to talk about office for a moment. So on the strongest multi-markets by the end of 2022, you list Orange County, Inland Empire, Detroit, Cleveland, and New York City as the strongest multi-market. So I, I just want to point out there that the, you know, if you will, the blue markets, the markets right. that have suffered so greatly now, you're putting a lot on them as it relates to strength. As it relates to your weakest multi-markets by the end of 2022, you have Orlando, Charleston, Miami, Denver. You can't pick on Denver. Come on, Peter. Chicago and Tampa. What I thought was interesting about that is you've got real weakness in Florida. So markets in Florida that have been complete stars. Just briefly, what is it about the Florida market that you don't like on the multi side? All about supply. If you look at the markets that I liked, it's about supply relative to demand. And they were relatively relative to the demand, not a lot of supply pipeline empty. If you look at the markets, I don't like take Charleston. I love Charleston in the long-term context. I absolutely love it from a longer-term context, but it's going to be a rough next year because there was a lot of product emptied out last year, this year, in the first part of next year. And we always knew it was going to be more supply than the demand. Right. And we're just living with it now. So the Florida markets, there was a lot of supply relative to the demand. So it's not that I don't like them in a fundamental way. It's just that when they were high supply markets, that's it's that simple if you really untangle it. So on the office side, there's this big question about when do we get back to office? And you talk a lot about office cap rates and cap rates kind of reverting back to pre-pandemic levels in sort of the 2024 timeframe. But you point out as far as your weakest office markets, Fairfield County, Houston, Westchester County, Austin, and Dallas. Now it struck me that you've got three, the three major Texas markets as your weak office markets. And it doesn't seem like a day that you pick up the Wall Street Journal and don't see some company that's leaving California and moving to Texas. 
why are you bearish on the Texas office market? So again, same answer. Love the demand side. It's about the supply. So if demand's going to grow by, say, 3%, but supply's going to grow by 4%, you tell me what happens, right? And so, and Houston has been, the, and Dallas have been the poster childs of that, probably all of your life, certainly, right? Which is, yep, by the way, Dallas and Houston over the last 30, 40 years, year after year, basically, the strongest demand growth. The problem is they grow the supply at about 1% faster than the demand or a half a percent faster. So they outrun. So it is not that I don't like the economies. I really like the economies. It's that it's all about supply, all about supply. Now, there are a few markets where it's about demand, but mostly it's all about supply. And if the supply outruns demand, people, if people make a mistake, a kind of systemic mistake in real estate as an investor, they focus on demand rather than demand fundamentals relative to supply fundamentals. And you get a market where demand is always good, but supply always outruns it, it's going to be weak. So, so that's all that's going on, Willie, is that. So on that, you also point out that you think that there'll be no new deliveries, basically, of hospitality and retail that basically those sectors, other than something that was started pre-pandemic, there's going to be no new Correct. delivery of retail and hospitality. But you also point out, Peter, which I thought was a fascinating stat, that between 2009 and 2019, 64% of retail sales growth in America was through bricks and mortar. And so while all of us think that Amazon and everybody else has taken over the world, and clearly Online sales have grown at a much, much faster rate than bricks and mortar. But as you look at the aggregate amount of retail sales in America, and I think the number was that was a growth of $1.1 trillion in retail sales between 2009 and 2019, and 64% of it happened through bricks and mortar. So with no new supply of retail, and you've also, you and I have spoken about previously, we were over retail pre-pandemic and that a lot of, if you will, mediocre retail is now out. What's your outlook for retail and hospitality? I think the easier one, hospitality will do quite well coming out of the freeing up of us. They'll do quite well, first with local travel, then more exotic travel. The U.S. will benefit from U.S. consumers because they won't be able to go abroad, but they'll be hurt by not having a lot of foreign. Now, not having a lot of foreign will not affect a lot of markets, but it will hit Orlando, right, in, in hospitality. It'll hit New York. It'll hit D.C. It'll hit Philadelphia less. That's not to say we don't have any foreigners, but not nearly the proportion of those other markets. So I think hospitality will do well. The challenge in hospitality is am I paying you alluded to it earlier. I'm paying as if it's already recovered when it hasn't. So there's still a risk that I'm wrong. And as my wife frequently reminds me, I'm wrong a lot, as hard as that is for me to believe. She, after 40, almost 48 years, continues to remind me of that. At 50, you're right on everything, Peter. There's absolutely nothing you can do. No, we won't be able to remember. We won't be able to remember. (laughs) And then on retail, here's my view on retail. The thing that happened to Brick was that they were used to getting all the growth. And then instead, and by the way, supply kind of came online and all the rules of thumb where we get all the growth. And then they weren't getting all the growth. 
they were only getting part of the growth and you were already overbuilt for a lot of reasons. And suddenly you were really overbuilt, right? And not just overbuilt physically, but over-retailered with a bunch of weak retailers, right? And that has to get shaken out. Now, I think that's changed right now. It's hard to get money for bricks, right? And maybe if you have Publix or somebody like that, you can do something, right? But other than that, so here's my analysis of retail. Online sales, as best we can measure it, which is not perfect, was rising about 125 basis points a year as a share of all non-auto-related retail. So the pie is all non-auto retail, and it had gotten to 15% in 2000. I'm rounding. We've gotten to 15% in 2019 that says by the end of 2020 the trend was to be about 16 and a quarter percent and by the way you've seen those charts really they're pretty straight trends right they're pretty straight okay so by the end of 2020 it was supposed to be 16 and a quarter it ended up at 18 percent of all share all sales that is to say yes 18% of all sales is a lot different than 16 and a quarter. But I played basketball reasonably competitively until I was 53. And I averaged about eight points a game, let's say. I'm rounding a little bit. I averaged eight points a game. If I told you I then played a season where my defenders had their hands literally tied behind their back, and my scoring average went from eight points a game to nine points a game. And I said, are you impressed? I don't think you'd be impressed. I just, by the way, it's true I scored more, but it's not an impression because their hands were tied behind their back. Okay. And by the way, if I further asked you what happens when I untie their hands, you'd say you're going to go back to scoring eight points a game. What happened with online sales is they tied the competition, Brits, literally had their hands tied behind their backs. As you know, whole malls were literally shuttered. Whole retailers literally shuttered. And it's still they could only get it up to 18%. Give yeah. me a break. Yeah. Right? By the way, in yeah. the last two months, as best we can tell, guess what's happening to the share of online sales? It's going down. And it's, going, it's not going to go down to zero. It's going to go down to a round trend line. Right. And so, so no, I don't know why people are so impressed. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, it's going to see its day again. So on that, and we've only got a couple minutes, so we've got to be brief here. But on that, you also talk about, I mean, looking at the pandemic and what the pandemic did to retail sales is super, super helpful to understanding exactly those percentages you just talked about. You also talk about, carbon emissions and what happened in the pandemic and where we have to get to for the Paris Accords. And the numbers are eye-popping, Peter. They're eye-popping because we didn't, even when the economy was shut down, shut down, shut down, we still didn't even get a fraction of the way to what we're supposed to get to by Paris. And so for as briefly as you can talk about both we what we saw in the yeah. pandemic and then also how unrealistic getting to the levels established in the Paris Accords we yeah. are. Look, everybody with a brain appropriately is concerned about global climate change, whatever you want to call it. 
but let's be realistic and let's have it in context. I write about this in the last issue. Let's have context versus other problems in the world. And as you know, I travel, I have this program in Africa and I do. And when I see literally millions of people dying a year for lack of clean water, the rise in temperature over the next hundred years that might affect, might affect some lives, you know, I don't want to put so many resources. So to that, we had, when the economy was completely shut down, we only did about 10% of what was necessary by 2030. Right. To get to the Paris Accord. Just repeat, right. that again. repeat that again. When in April of last year, when all of us sat outside yeah. and looked up in the sky and there was not a single airplane flying, we got 10% to what the Paris Accord is asking. We got 10% to what the Paris Accord would require, which is to say we would have to do it again the next, not just do it again, we'd have to have that same drop again and again. So in that sense, it's not, it sounds good. In a classroom, it sounds good in a speech, it sounds good, but it's not realistic. What I suspect ultimately will resolve the challenge of climate is over the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, technological advance. And do I know what that'll be? Of course I don't. But that's what I believe will be. And in fact, I know it's a little self-serving, but again, on my... The reason I care so much, you know, there are a lot of people say, well, why do you care about those people dying of waterborne pathogens in countries I've never been to or would never go to or, you know, whatever, is because they're smart, too. And for all I know, one of those kids who just died while we've been doing this session might have been the kid that if they lived 40 years from now would have figured out how to solve some important part of the emissions. We need those resources. And by focusing so uh, crazily on the current situation while other bigger human tragedies are happening that are robbing us of human capital in a very real and immediate sense. Yes, I don't want people to die, but I also don't want them to die for the reason of their productive pieces of society. And for people to say, oh, they'll never advance. That's what they said about China when I went there in 85. And they say, oh, they'll never advance. And you go, wait a minute. You know, you come back 35 years later, it's a whole different picture. So anyway, we are at the bottom of the hour. I have about three more pages of notes to get through with you, but we always stop this right on time. So a couple of things. First of all, to any of you who um, don't get the Lineman letter and want to get it and read it, as I said previously, linemanassociates.com, and you can sign up for it. Second of all, I have notes and notes and notes that I asked Peter about that are sort of my crib notes, uh, my crib notes on the Lineman report. If anyone would like those notes on this one, I'm perfectly happy to send them around. Just write an email to our email address and we'll send you a copy of those. And then the third thing is, Peter, thank you. I love doing this on a quarterly basis. It's super insightful. I look forward to doing it after the next quarter, if you'll come back. And uh, I hope you have a great day in Philadelphia. And thanks as always for the partnership and the friendship. I look forward to coming back and thank you for the friendship and the time and opportunity. We'll talk soon. Thanks everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.